Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're here in the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty archives, looking at part three in our series on the shadow. If you meant to start at the beginning, that's not this one, but I could understand why you jump in here. This is one of my favorites. It's Carl Jung's greatest discovery, which you can't read about in any of his writings, but we're going to talk about it in this episode. And in this contemplation, we will bring to a close our basic inquiry into the shadow. Well, mostly. We're going to do maybe at least one more that's a little different than what we have been doing. But we've been looking at what the shadow is. And we're trying to get to a place where we could begin to maybe sense it in ourselves. Now, let's recall a few essential things. First, the shadow is unconscious, which means it's something we don't know about ourselves. When I speak to people about a situation in their life in which they exhibited reactivity, and we begin to ask if the shadow played any role, typically they will explain why it doesn't make sense that the shadow was involved in this or that way And they'll have very good reasons for it. And it will make sense if you listen to them and they describe the context and themselves. But our reasoning in these cases, that making sense of things, usually amounts to rationalization. If something unconscious has shaped our activity in the world in some situation, we can only do a kind of spiritual forensics to look for evidence, you know. It's like a forensic investigation of the soul. And we're looking for something we don't see, but we could find evidence of. Now, the evidence tends to involve our reactivity. But even that can appear in kind of subtle forms or even in unexpected ways. For instance, people can put on a happy face. Now, some people just seem happy-go-lucky in their constitution. And other people have made some sort of conscious decision to avoid negativity, and they seem to really be centered in it, you know? They're just, well, I'm just a very positive person. But in both cases, we can still ask a fairly basic question. Is the person totally enlightened? Is this happy-go-lucky person or the person who made a decision to be happy, are they a sage? Are they a saint? some kind of avatar of the divine? Because if not, then they have encumbered energies in them. They have an unconscious that contains shadow material. We might think of the appearance of positivity and joy as healthy, but no form of delusion goes without consequences. And so if the positivity and joy come from genuine wisdom, genuine contact with reality, that's one thing. But often, people expressing positivity keep the suffering in the world and even the suffering in themselves at a distance. 
and they do many things in their lives that they would not do if they could allow themselves to see that suffering clearly. Moreover, they fail to do many things that they might not fail to do if they could let themselves clearly perceive the suffering in their own psyche and in the world. Now this particular germ, we could call it, of positivity seems to have infected a great many people in both New Agey and business circles. You know, in the business circles, we're supposed to be very positive about all the, we, all the things we can do. It's a can-do attitude, for instance, even about the climate catastrophe. And the same is true in a lot of New Agey circles. And it seems that if business people and New Agey types could see how much they have in common in their basic style of thought, it might give both sides pause, because a lot of business people would want to see themselves as very different from a lot of the New Agey people, the kind of caricature of the New Age person. Same thing with the New Age person who thinks of the caricature of the business type and says, that's not me, I'm very different from that. If they could see how much they had in common, both of them might really pause for a moment and say, what's going on here? Now, we do have to get clear that we're not trying to give ourselves problems here or give ourselves a big complex. That's not what it means to question our potential positivity. But rather, if we have a spiritual orientation to life, we want to give up self-deception. And that goes together with giving up all our doing. We have to do the repression and suppression of our pain and the pain of the world. And we, of course, do lots of needless things in general. And this doing orientation degrades the world. We just want to get more honest about ourselves, our world, and the nature of reality. And if we aren't enlightened sages, we will tend to find a lot of dark matter in the psyche. Now, Jung himself, and I always use him as a touchstone because, first of all, he studied the whole of Western culture and the Western psyche with such care, not only as a scholar, but as a healer. He saw hundreds of patients and taught many, many therapists. So he really interacted intimately with the psyche, and he visited different cultures, studied the history of Western psyche, so he really has a, a sensitivity that we can respect. And so he famously pointed this out, this issue of the bright side and the dark side. It, it happened in a discussion of the occult. He was writing the foreword to a book. And I'll read you the passage. He wrote, The primitive fear of ghosts is still deep in our bones, but it is unconscious. Rationalism and superstition are complementary. It is a psychological rule that the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. In other words, the more rationalistic we are in our conscious minds, the more alive becomes the spectral world of the unconscious. And it is indeed obvious that rationality is in large measure an apotropaic defense against superstition, which is ever-present 
and unavoidable. The demonic world of primitives is only a few generations away from us, and the things that have happened and still go on happening in the dictator states teach us how terrifyingly close it is. That's the passage. The nugget that many people grab hold of there is that line, that fragment, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. Now, one thing to note here, as we touched on last time, that idea of the dictator states, say the shadowy material, we, we saw it with the election of Trump, and again, it doesn't matter whether you voted for him or not, it's still some really dark material there. It's easy to see that. Violence came out of that. Something dark is going on. There's this unfortunate mention of primitives here. And that's something maybe we can touch on again later. Jung had some confused views sometimes. He also mentions this uh, notion of rationality. And yet we have to apply it also to our positivity. You see, because we can get this passage, I think, the wrong way. He's talking about rationalism as reasoning being used as apotropaic. Well, that means apotropaic means something meant to turn away evil. So an apotropaic image, like if people put it, uh, I'm Greek, so everybody's got evil eye uh, image. You know, you put this image of an eye and the eye turns away evil. It's an apotropaic figure. And there are other kinds of apotropaic images. Sometimes those apotropaic images are frightening. So they're supposed to scare away the evil. They're supposed to be more terrifying than even the demons that might come to us. And he says here that we use reason as an apotropaic defense against the unknown, against the superstitious, against the indigenous, against the other. But we also use emotion. And that means even positivity, because people talk about moving from the head to the heart, but the, ap- the heart can act as an apotropaic spell too. Our positivity can be an apotropaic defense against the fear of the unknown, the fact that the conditions of life are collapsing around us. Well, let's be positive then. Well, are you sure? Is that real positivity? Or is grief and despair and really not knowing what to do being pushed into the unconscious? Does it exist in the shadow? And consciously, you know what to do. I know what to do. We see this with self-help gurus and all kinds of people. They know what to do. Well, then the not knowing what to do must be in the shadow if they're fully convinced that they know what to do. Otherwise, we have to say, well, I don't know. And I'm scared. And I can't predict the future. And I can't control the climate. And I do miss these species. And I don't want them to go extinct. That's difficult stuff. And what do we use as the apotropaic image? Is it reason, is it emotion, or is it both? That we use to try to frighten away the fact that we don't know what to do, or that we should admit we don't know what to do. And what we're acknowledging, really, is the thing that Jung said more than once, that the psyche presents the greatest danger to the world, because we maintain ignorance of it. We don't really know our own psyche, our own soul, our own mind and heart. We don't know our own world. In other words, 
once we realize these are not two things. So by exploring the shadow, we come to greater intimacy with the psyche and we come into greater intimacy with the whole of life, the whole of the cosmos, our own body, our own ecologies. All that can be, is, it's there. Now, one other thing that we should mention has to do with the need for a holistic philosophy of life, including a holistic practice of that philosophy. If we try to satisfy ourselves with abstractions, which we often do, unwittingly, because we can think that we're not being abstract, but we really are being abstract, and we end up in a lot of trouble, we'll ruin ourselves in the world on the basis of abstractions, on the basis of not having a holistic philosophy of life and a holistic practice of that philosophy. We can relate to the shadow as if it were an abstraction. We may take it seriously on the surface. We're consciously saying that we're taking it seriously, but in the way we practice, we've dealt with it as an abstraction. We might get a lot out of that practice, and so it reinforces it. Say, look, look at all this work I've done. Yes, it still remains at a level removed. And so that means material stays repressed in the shadow because of instinctual fears about how to work with it. Or the possibility that we could let material out of the unconscious or the shadow that we haven't prepared ourselves to handle. So in either of those cases, we perpetuate our ignorance and our suffering along with the suffering of the world. And on the other hand, if we go rushing into the shadow, and try to let absolutely everything out without preparation, we create the conditions for a breakdown. So you see, those are the two things that the, the ego either instinctively senses what can't be let out because we're not ready to handle it, and so then it just stays there, or it gets let out and we aren't ready to handle it, and this creates more suffering for us. Either way, it's not going to get worked through. Deep shadow work is like advanced meditation in that sense. It's not advised for those who need to strengthen their sense of self and strengthen the capacities of their self, that is, their holistic self, before any skillful work can begin. And so we have to start with things that simply alert us to the presence of the shadow, things that really go together with increasing our basic mindfulness of life. We especially need to establish a strong practice of the four and six immeasurables. That would go for anyone, from any tradition. Having a practice of compassion is not sectarian. It has nothing to do with any... Every tradition respects compassion and care. But not every tradition has good, solid, scientifically verified practices. So we want to start with the four and six immeasurables because it includes compassion. That's how we practice compassion. And we also need some measure of wisdom so that we have a basically helpful and skillful view of ourselves and the cosmos and the world we live in. And we're just touching the, the stance that Jung himself had, that he saw his work as philosophy and saw himself as a philosopher. It's not a, something he emphasized, it's just it, it, you find these places where he confesses it, he admits it. And we know where his influences came, they came from the philosophical tradition. 
That's not a question. He understood that we need a philosophy of life in order to properly heal ourselves and the world and to fulfill our greatest potential. Now, all that said, we should also note, as much as we might admire Jung, because he was really wonderful, he probably wasn't quite the psychologist or the philosopher that Buddha was. Just kind of objective, tried to look and think carefully. Buddha was really remarkable, extraordinary psychologist and philosopher, very comprehensively so, that he presents us both. And even if we said, well, no, but Jung was really as good a psychologist as Buddha, there's a further problem, and that is that Buddha's philosophy and psychology got elaborated across multiple cultures over the course of 2,600 years. Now, Jung's work obviously has not enjoyed that level of practice and realization, that amount of elaboration. So for those reasons, we might want to point out a few things from other philosophical and psychological traditions. Maybe there are others that we might study. We might study things about indigenous psychology and philosophy and say, wow, that's important to recognize without co-opting. But just to carefully say, what does that say about where we need to keep practicing? Do we need to seek instruction from those traditions? And we're fortunate that with the Buddhist tradition, there's not it offers itself as a psychological and philosophical teaching that anybody can come and practice. We don't have to... We have to, of course, approach it carefully, as Buddha himself said. Treat this like you would handle a poisonous snake. That's how you handle his teaching. But it's not restricted. You can learn Buddhist meditation that's very different than trying to take up some indigenous practice that doesn't belong to you because it belongs to a particular culture. But again, Buddhist philosophy and psychology has been elaborated across cultures. So it's a, it's a useful resource if we handle it carefully, respectfully, and understand it's really offering us many warnings. Now one thing that Buddhist philosophy could warn us about a little bit is Jung's cartography of the soul. Because it's marvelous that Jung has expanded the sense of what the soul is, giving us this larger sense of the unconscious and the collective unconscious. But the Buddhist traditions, rather than speaking of an unconscious, might rather speak of increasingly subtle levels of awareness. And Jung himself did have some sense of that. He wrote a little bit about this, and he wrote that what Buddhist philosophy, or he kind of characterizes the whole of the East, which is maybe not so skillful, but what the Eastern philosophies refer to as mind, he thought maybe that's more analogous to what we would call the unconscious, which is funny, right? Created a bit of a puzzle for him. Because he noted that for people in the dominant culture, and he's, he wrote about this in his uh, commentary to a very bad translation of a work of, of Buddhist philosophy, in fact. And he was writing there that to people in the dominant culture, consciousness 
is inconceivable without an ego. If there's no ego present, then there's no one to be conscious of anything. So he saw ego as indispensable to consciousness, to conscious process. Now he also wrote that he did not doubt the existence of mental states transcending consciousness, but he confessed that he felt they somehow had to lose their consciousness. <laughs> you see, that he couldn't imagine a conscious mental state that doesn't relate to some subject. And so therefore we can understand Jung's work as relating to the development of consciousness, which sounds nice in one sense, but from the Buddhist viewpoint, it could indicate a limitation. Because he's, he's saying there's this thing, the consciousness, and this other structure, the unconscious, and he's insisting on a subject, which means he's insisting on a kind of duality or questions that we would ask. And the funny thing is that Jung himself got a glimpse of both this limitation in his work and the wider landscape of the soul beyond that limitation. And he got that glimpse when he went through the death process. The Buddhist tradition works a lot with the death process. And the thoughts that we were just talking about from Jung, I said it's from the, his commentary. It's from a, the, his commentary on a bad translation of a book that in the dominant culture we refer to as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So that's how it was translated, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And Jung was writing a, some reflections on this. Now that's obviously, it's a Tibetan book and it, you would not call, you could make sense of the fact that they wouldn't call their own book the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And they don't even call it the Book of the Dead. The book is probably best translated as liberation upon hearing or liberation upon hearing in the between. Now that's a better title and it's a really nice title because it says, hey, this text is about liberation. And in particular, liberation in the between. Well, what's the between? The word that means between is bardo in Tibetan. And there are many bardos in our lives because we go from one situation to the next. You know, we, we, we're, we're here, then we're there. So we're always in between something. Everything is neither this nor that, ultimately, but always between. So there's a way in which our whole life is bardo. And it's usually a kind of mindless bardo as opposed to a mindful and awakened sense of neither this nor that. We're always trying to not be in a between, and yet we're, we end up relating to everything as if we're never really there. It's it's a little subtle point. Now, even though we have all these betweens, you know, you're listening to this in between doing what you were doing before and doing the next thing. You'll go from this to the next thing, and so this is in between two other things that you will do today. But the Tibetan tradition speaks of six main bardos or betweens. So aside from the fact that everything is a like a between, there's the general between of life. So this whole thing that we go through, that's a bardo. And then there's a bardo of dreaming. That's interesting, right? So that's a bardo between being awake and one day and waking up the next. There's a between. And in that between we dream. There's another between, that's meditation. 
Then there's the between of dying, that is the, the death process. And then when we go through the death process, we enter the between of the intrinsic nature of all things. We spend some time there, relatively speaking, after we die, but before we get reborn. And then finally, there is a between of gestation, we could say. That's where we, for instance, grow a, a body in our mother's womb. That's a, its own bardo. And it could seem strange to us that the Tibetans in some traditions actually practice for the dying process. It's a very concrete practice where they might lay down and pretend to be dying and going through specific experiential layers that they, that they say all of us will go through when we die and that we can go through even when we go to sleep at night. So these practices often go together. With you know, The practice of dying goes together with the practice of meditation and the practice of dreaming. So these bardos start to get linked. And the process of meditation is the essence of betweenness. Or we could say that betweenness is the meditation experience. That's how Chogyam Trungpa put it, Tibetan philosopher. So we can learn, actually, to stay aware from the moment we close our eyes at night, you lay down to go to bed, and you could learn to maintain awareness from the moment you close your eyes down into the withdrawal of the senses. The senses gradually withdraw from their external orientation. Then you go into sleep and still aware and then aware into the dream so that you the dream sort of turns on. It's almost in a way like the holodeck on the Star Trek show, you know, suddenly, whoom, there's this thing that appears. It was all, it's all black. The senses have withdrawn and you go through this process and everything becomes dark. And then, whoom, eventually the dream bardo opens up and you see a scene and you know that it's dreaming. Say, ah, yes, this is now the dream. And then down even into dreamless sleep. Now, for most of us, deep, dreamless sleep means no consciousness. And the same thing for dying. Go through a similar process. The idea is that a person can maintain awareness as the body shuts down, the senses all shut down and withdraw, and one could maintain awareness all the way through the dying process and into the next bardo. Now, Jung may or may not have found it odd to speak of awareness in deep, dreamless sleep. He certainly wouldn't call it consciousness. And again, it was consciousness that held his focus. Now, all of that sets us up for a fascinating moment. I'd like to share with you an artifact that seems exceptional in terms of the archaeology of the soul. And it's one of the best things I've ever heard about Jung. Better than maybe all the things he wrote. And he did write some wonderful, insightful things. He's a really good person to study. Now, this artifact comes from a letter dated December 1960, which a woman called Kate Hillman wrote to her then-husband, James Hillman, a famous psychologist in his own right. And she wrote this letter to James Hillman while James was in the U.S. raising money for the C.G. Jung Institute in Switzerland. And in this letter, she describes how Jung experienced insight 
through the dying process. Now, I'll read it to you, but we should maybe recall some context. Kate Hillman was in Europe. She was in Switzerland, where Jung lived, and James Hillman was in the U.S. And this all happened in 1960, so they obviously couldn't text or email. And the transatlantic cable had only been in place for a few years, maybe four years. And so they seem to have been relying on letters because she writes the letter in December and refers to events several months prior. Now here's what she wrote. It seems Jung almost died in September. Then to his own surprise, came back to life in order to experience something new once more. He lives now in an in-between state somehow. Most often, he lets himself drop off into awake, non-directive states, leaving the ego and the mind out. He says he experiences truth as light, that is not with the consciousness he has preached all these years, but another kind of awareness on a very deep level. Jung says he does not trust consciousness in the usual sense anymore. Lillian Frey says it means giving up a great deal to enter into this state where truth, so to say, lingers on a different level that Jung has always known about it, but not until now really taking it on as a change in himself. That just seems like an extraordinary artifact, right up there with St. Thomas Aquinas uh, after his spiritual, great spiritual awakening. This is a guy who wrote, I don't know how many, hundreds, thousands maybe of pages of philosophy that undergraduates to this day still have to study. And meanwhile, once Thomas had his big spiritual experience, he said they were all worthless. He said that uh, they were too profane even to receive the droppings of the donkeys in the stable. That's what he said about everything he wrote. I don't think Jung's work gets totally discounted by this experience, but it really marks a profound expansion of our perspective on his work. Now, surely Jung could have claimed intellectual knowledge of more subtle awareness, but experience is always more precise than our concepts, and so he essentially remained ignorant until his death process, and we ourselves shouldn't put this off. Indeed, we should practice not only to prepare for death, but to live better now, and to go beyond even what Jung experienced in his life maybe even go beyond what he experienced in that death process, to experience for ourselves the most subtle levels of awareness and the most transformative insights into ourselves and the cosmos. And again, that's reflected in there, in this passage. Notice the language, in fact. Kate Hillman wrote that Jung lived in an in-between state. Those were her words. And remember, that's the literal meaning of bardo, the word from the Tibetan title of the book that we refer to as the Tibetan Book of the Dead and that Jung had been writing a commentary on. And Kate Hillman wrote that Jung entered non-directive states. And that makes a pretty good description of a certain kind of meditative state. 
we could call meditation a non-directive awareness or a kind of choiceless awareness. A shift into liminal awareness or more subtle levels of awareness that don't involve agency, subjectivity, time, and other elements as they would typically appear in relation with conquest consciousness and our ordinary egoic consciousness. And we see this reference to deeper layers, deeper layers, and Jung not trusting this consciousness that he has preached all these years. Now this deeper layer idea, that awareness itself is just grows more subtle, it means there isn't a structure called the conscious mind or ego, like a solid thing. And there's not a structure called the unconscious, like there it is, there's this, this other. There's this self, it's a structure, and it's kind of solid, and there's the other, the unconscious. But somehow what we call conscious and what we call unconscious arise as processes. And they arise from more subtle levels of awareness, and ultimately from awareness that we ourselves are, and we could somehow become aware of how these habits arise. The unconscious, then, is not some ordinary place in the cartography of the soul, but rather a a more skillful cartography of the soul reveals that places are alive, places are processes. And the unconscious isn't something other in some dualistic sense, but it involves habits and processes that we can awaken to because they exist as a subtle level of awareness itself. However we want to put it, it seems Jung experienced a revolution in his dying process. A revolution greater maybe than the revolution he himself invited us to see as implicit in the discovery of the unconscious. And again, he found consciousness even more limited than we might have thought. <laughs> you know, he had still some real stock placed in consciousness. And then he starts to say, well, you know, no, I don't trust it. There's something else here. It's deep. What did he learn? Isn't that strange? Shouldn't all of us wonder about it? Somebody who was so interested in the psyche and had such a revelation. And we're saying this because it's not just Jung telling us about this. That's the point, really, that we're making. Vast spiritual traditions, including the Tibetan traditions, explicitly teach about the bardo of dying, the process of dying, and what's on the other side of it. And they explicitly offer the doctrine, the teaching, the sole medicine of a primordial awareness that is itself the foundation upon which what we call consciousness depends. So this more limited thing that we keep trying to identify with out of habit, that's not what we are. The mind science, the nature science of many Buddhist traditions invite us to verify this awareness for ourselves and allow it to change our way of knowing, our way of living, loving, and liberating in mutuality. Indeed, we can only truly know it in, through, and as a better way of knowing. And it doesn't belong to the Buddhist tradition, like as if we have to become Buddhist, as if we have to be 
take some vow of faith, or we can be Christian, we can be anything. Because these are teachings about the nature of the human mind, the nature of nature, the nature of reality. And there's nothing in them that, that conflicts with any religious tradition. Not these core teachings. No conflict. That's why there are Christian monastics who study Buddhism so carefully. They're not giving up their Christianity, but they see these teachings as the best way to be proper Christians. And we're talking about even monastics, Christian monastics. That's a high level of commitment, much more than the average Christian who might dismiss teachings from other traditions. Very committed people have studied and practiced some of these things. Even indigenous people have studied and uh, practiced some of the Buddhist teachings. So it's not something that's somehow strange, and it doesn't mean that it's the, it's the only truth. That's not what it means either. That's why the Christians stay Christian. They don't become Buddhist. They still believe that Christianity is their path. So it's not overriding anything. And the basic idea here is that a better way of knowing depends on how we cultivate our awareness. That we can somehow become centered in these more subtle levels of awareness. A better way of knowing and being, a better way of living and loving, depends on how we cultivate the mind and the heart. Which includes becoming mindful and heartful of the body, of the emotions, feelings, perceptions, and the various mental formations that arise in our awareness and constitute our habitual experience. Now, the word shadow work, what we're talking about, depends on awareness first and foremost. In the context, awareness in the context of our highest values and the basic intention of an awakening heart. To, to wake up in order to help people to participate in the world skillfully, ethically. And that's to say that shadow work depends on awareness, first and foremost, but even prior to that, it depends on ethics, on love and compassion, and a conscientious way of making a living in the world, a livelihood. Shadow work has to unfold on the basis of right livelihood and ethical conscience. And it requires a basic vision of the cosmos, a philosophically skillful and realistic sense of what a human being is, what reality is, what a healthy mind might be, which would include a non-duality between the conscious and the unconscious, a non-duality between mind and nature, a non-duality between nature and culture, a non-duality between cosmos and psyche. Once we have these and other basics of love wisdom in place, we can begin with the awareness itself, the great medicine for the soul. Now we've mentioned awareness is a skill. And as a skill, it involves inhibiting habitual patterns, slowing down, pausing to perceive. We could say it as one word, pause and perceive, or stopping and sensing. Like that's one word, stopping and sensing. Really just relax, let go of our white-knuckling grip. We're always white-knuckling our way through life. We don't notice that. And we can only heal the shadow or anything else that's, even our traumas. We, we, don't, we can't heal them until we can sense them, really feel the energy flowing, sense the activity. 
And in the shadow, we have to be able to see that it's moving us, driving us. In a general way, we could begin with a kind of inventory and with some reflection. It could help us to begin to notice the activity of the shadow. Because we're trying to notice something that we can't see. It's invisible, but we're looking for the effects of it. It's that spiritual forensics, forensics of the soul. And the main way we could... uh, Obviously, again, centrally, we have to perceive with experience, of course. I just want to say that again. It's intimacy with experience. That's it. The end of self-deception and a real intimacy with our own life. So we start to notice our reactivity and our repeating patterns of behavior because these can often indicate the presence of shadow material or subtle levels of awareness, again, that we have not made uh, contact with. So they're running us as if they're other, but there's not a real dualism there. And we should remind ourselves the shadow is not synonymous with samsara or the cycle of ignorance, like as in a a strongly negative thing. But our, our suffering can only happen on the basis of ignorance and unconscious dynamics. And our practice relaxes us so that we could become liberated into more subtle awareness. And thus we can liberate the energy trapped in these habitual patterns. So there's this real concrete thing, and I'm saying that because we're just going to do like an inventory that evokes our experience, but is not the same as this ongoing moment-to-moment intimacy, this mindfulness and heartfulness, bodyfulness that we have that really tells us what's going on. We're now trying to just remember it. And by asking certain questions, that will also remind us to look in our experience. But we're dealing at a little bit of a remove. We're trying to remember things. And maybe you can evoke a little bit the experience in yourself to the extent that it feels comfortable. But we're asking the questions to see if our little detector might go off. Oh, wait, there. yes, there might be something over there. I don't know what it is because it's invisible, but do I sense the effects of it? So... To work with this inventory, I'll be speaking some words to you and you let them sink into your mind. And as they do, just relax and notice how you feel. Let go of the temptation to rationalize or to to get too, as people like to say, heady, start to think and get all spinning wheels and conceptual, but see if by listening to the words or bringing to mind whatever they evoke, if you really bring it to mind, Do you sense anything happening? Do you notice any energy, reactivity? Just what happens with your system? What what does it do to your mind and body? And if you notice the reactivity, or you notice a funny answer to a question or a prompt that I offer, just keep that in mind. Say, all right, that might be some place to look. So I might uh, here offer a statement and you just complete the statement and do it as directly as you can without thinking or analyzing and let yourself in general surprise yourself with your own honesty here. You just, you have a moment. You might want to do this in private or do it inwardly if you're listening with someone else. If you're in a car, maybe save this part, come back to it because we're going to try to evoke these invisible things. We just relax. Nothing here can hurt us. We're safe. 
and we just have a light touch. We're just checking out some of our experience. So the first thing, maybe we can start like this. Think of someone you find really irritating. Just think of somebody that you find really irritating, and what is it about them that you find irritating? And you can pause after these. I won't wait too. I won't pause too long, but I'll give you enough room to maybe hit pause if you want. But just see if you could really bring the person to mind. See everything about them, the way they, they their gestures, the way they talk. Maybe how they portray their experience, how the way that they're emotional. What is it about them that you find irritating? And the fact is that what you find so irritating about them might be something that's in your shadow. Or we could put it this way. You can complete this statement. Something that really gets on my nerves. Every time I see somebody... Every time I see blank, it really gets on my nerves, really grates me. Or you could try this one. It's not easy to admit, but the thing that scares me most is... Here's another one. The people I most love might not love me back if, if they found out that... What? Here's another one. I have to admit that I might feel much happier and more accomplished in my life if only I... Now, sometimes we really have to sneak up on these because if you were able to just fill that in, you, you might have touched right on a shadow. Something that, but you might have to start there and keep going. Because there's the part that you can say and there's the part that you don't know yet about yourself. Sometimes suppressed things end up being in the shadow and they stay there. And we can find them because they're, we can find our way back to them. But suppression means we're pushing it down, but we might still have an awareness of it. Repression means we don't have any idea it's even there. That's why some people can have anger, for instance, and have no idea because everybody who knows them thinks they're so kind and that I've never seen so-and-so angry. It could be in the shadow. Now finally, let's consider a couple other questions. Just ask yourself this. To what degree is nature in my shadow? To what degree is wildness in my shadow. And that one's interesting because we can just ask ourselves, to what degree am I unconscious 
of nature? To what degree am I unconscious of wildness, the real meaning of wildness and the real processes of wildness in the world? Isn't that just an interesting thing to consider? How far away is the nearest fruiting tree to where you live? Now, if you have them in your front yard, that's an easy one to answer. If you live in the city, it might be a lot harder. How close to your front door is the nearest edible thing? When's the last time you saw a wolf or a coyote in the wild? When's the last time you were in wilderness? Not a state park, wilderness, backcountry. Or, I mean, if it was a state park, let's say backcountry in the state park. The places you don't drive to, but you have to hike into, a few miles at least. And we could ask related questions. To what degree are indigenous people in my shadow? To what degree am I just completely unconscious of their experience, what was the name of the indigenous people who lived where you live right now? And where are they? To what degree do indigenous people exhibit characteristics that I do not see in myself, but could see in myself? Not because I co-opted their culture, but because I became more spiritual, more realistic, and began to live in harmony with myself, with the earth, and with my own spiritual tradition. And part of what's in the shadow there is all the things that your culture tells you you can't do. You can't do that. You have to have a job and a car, and you have to go to the grocery store. You have to have a Costco membership and shop on Amazon, and that's the way it has to go. So it's totally unconscious. It's not possible to live more in harmony with yourself, with the earth, and with your own spiritual tradition. And we can ask similar questions about that touch on, say, institutionalized racism. The shadow work has to do with ending self-deception. We've said that, and it bears saying again. I could say it a million times. I love Milarepa's idea. My religion is ending self-deception. And shadow work has to do with the actual practice of wisdom, love, and beauty, which, again, includes the practice of compassion. The practice of compassion, the practice of wisdom, love, and beauty means taking care of suffering and ignorance wherever we find it. If we find it in ourselves, we take care of it there. We don't give up on anyone or anything. We go to the places that scare us, and we help those we think we cannot help, even if the places that scare us are in our own mind and heart even maybe in our own bodies. And even if the one we think we have 
most beyond help, <laughs> the one we think most beyond help might be ourselves. We might not give up on anyone else, so to speak, but we, we give up on ourselves. But that means there's a give up attitude in there. And it marks a limit to how we relate to the world. We're seeking, in other words, maybe a, a basic kindness for ourselves in order to offer a basic kindness and dignity to the world. We have to touch our own dignity. Or we could put that in other ways. We could just as easily say, we seek our own basic wisdom so that we could offer a basic wisdom and sanity to the world. We seek the basic goodness of the world right here in our own heart. We seek to understand and then wonderstand how nature works, how the cosmos and psyche actually function. We can't understand, let alone wonderstand, the functioning of life if we remain in ignorance and if we remain trapped in personal and cultural patterns of insanity. So shadow work involves noticing patterns, noticing our reactivity, our reflexes, tensions, bracings, habits, the way that we use reason as an epotropaic device, you know, scare away something, and the way we use emotion. Oh, I just feel it. <laughs> People try to turn emotion into a new place for the ego to hide, but they don't present it that way. It's presented rationally like, no, if you live in your heart, that's the true place. That's just a, a new way to manipulate and control reality. We have to look with a lot of care to sense the what they call used to call in chaos strange attractors, the curvatures in the space of the soul that draw us into orbits of thought, speech, and action that keep us encumbered and asleep and perpetuating the pattern of insanity that's degrading peoples and cultures and ecologies in general. As we notice them, we can inhibit them. That means that saying a life-affirming no to them. It's life-affirming. It's noble. Just say, no, I don't have to follow that pattern. And we can begin to investigate, working with mindfulness, which it's, it's almost like a ruined word. Awareness. Deep awareness, intimate awareness. And we could incorporate techniques like demon feeding, which might sound scary. It's just a process of dealing with these complexes to liberate them. It's, it's not anything uh, that sounds awful, but it comes from the Buddhist philosophical tradition, Machig Labdron, great female philosopher, incredible figure, incredible teacher, who taught people how to heal their own obstructions. That's like, you know, when we say, uh, uh, my demons are getting me, my inner demons, you know, that's, that's the idea. And we can release the encumbered energy of those patterns for the benefit of all beings. And it's gritty work at times. But the whole world depends on it. The whole world. We can see that now, what Jung was saying. The whole world hangs from a thread. He said that thread is the psyche. And how each of us will work with it and how we'll work with it together. And I marvel all the time, and it's unsurprising, of course, because the ego does what it does. So it's, it's never surprising. At the same time, it still seems interesting to me when people I work with express disbelief or surprise. 
at the possibility that the unconscious is at play, or they'll express suspicion and resistance to it. And sometimes they believe, really, they really believe that their spiritual path and the work that they've done has excavated the unconscious. And so it's like the ways that our unconscious or our ignorance in general could manipulate us remains inconceivable to us, you see, because it's not conscious. That's why it's inconceivable. If we could if we could understand it, it wouldn't be happening. We'd be free from suffering. We wouldn't do the silly things we do. And so anyone who comes to a philosopher or a therapist and admits some suffering in their life, admits that they don't have it all figured out, admits that they still have work to do, maybe if it's only just a little, then they have to admit unconscious dynamics are at work. And that some of what goes on involves the 95% of their own psyche that they cannot perceive directly. At least, not now. It's at a more subtle, subtle level of awareness. And those aspects of the psyche direct and control things out of alignment with supposedly conscious intentions. That's crucial. What we call consciousness is too small of a bandwidth. It cannot manipulate and control reality. That's part of the great insanity of the dominant culture. We're trying to manipulate and control everything, ourselves and nature. And that's not even scientifically possible. Just by doing the math, we can be very rational and we say, well, it's not possible. So then even if we said, well, okay, I admit that maybe 10% of my activity might be the unconscious driving things. Well, that still means 10% of what we do came from unconscious dynamics. And in those cases, 10%, which is, I know this is all random, it's hard to talk about these things, but if we said, well, yeah, 10% of the time, well, that means that we had a, one conscious intention, which we told everyone, we were thinking, we, our experience was, this is my conscious intention, and we would tell the story of what was happening in a certain way, but the story would be a lie. And the real story would remain unconscious. Somebody would ask us, what did you do right there? Or what are you doing? And we would tell them, well, this is what's happening. Or this is what I did. This is what my intentions are. That's what I'm doing. And the truth would be, no, that's not it at all. But we would be convinced of our story. That's what unconscious means. We would say, no, this really is what's happening. Or this is really what happened in that situation. I'm telling you, these are my intentions. This is really what I'm doing. And in fact, it's not. And if that's true even one time out of every ten things we do, I don't know, the math is so weird, or we, we could imagine it differently because it's not mathematical like this, but we're just trying to say if there is even a small percentage of our behavior, so if we're awake for 16 hours and we're doing things, and we got very little, we'd say, well, you know, for like an hour and a half, unconscious dynamics are driving what you do. And yet consciously you're telling the story that you know what you're doing. It's obviously very nuanced how this works. How, how, is it one out of ten things I do? No. Is it an hour and a half of the day? No. It's that it's always there and it's having an effect. And the point is that major undertakings in our life could get directed by unconscious dynamics. The marriage 
or a relationship that we initiate. Maybe the one that you're in right now. You might be in it because of unconscious dynamics primarily, and not because of anything that you'll consciously explain to anyone, including your own partner, including yourself. Consciously, for yourself and for your partner, you have all kinds of wonderful reasons for being with the person or for ending a relationship. But in fact, the shadow and other unconscious dynamics have been at work. And you're projecting things onto the situation, onto yourself even, which just means that you have one conscious view and you think that it's accurate. And so whether you are insisting on staying in the relationship or leaving it, it might be unconscious dynamics at work. And we could get into a relationship purely out of hunger for initiation. And we get hooked by the archetype of initiation. We start projecting onto the person all kinds of unconscious energies. And maybe we were doing that projection and now we no longer can and we have a real difficulty. We're not sure what to do. We got into the relationship because we were doing all this projection. Now we can't find we can't do it anymore. And that destroys many relationships because a relationship can start to get stagnant. Then somebody else comes along and provokes the archetypes of initiation, provokes the unconscious dynamics, and suddenly a person finds themselves in the middle of an affair because they weren't addressing their spiritual needs in a holistic way, and terrible consequences ensue. So we need to address these things, otherwise we project them. If we don't address what's in the unconscious, we project it. And that's how we, again, how we got Trump. We project onto political figures, romantic figures, our therapists, self-help gurus, whoever it might be, we start projecting. So we were suggesting, and that's when I'm talking about these percentages, last time we were talking about how the uh, universe, everything we previously thought of as the whole universe is only 5% of the stuff that's out there. And we found out that 95% has been invisible to us. And we tried to make this analogy to the psyche that maybe 95% of ourselves is invisible to us. And then we could ask, well, what's the 5%? And psychologically speaking, the 5% is whatever we call normal. It's what we call normal and even we call it natural. So what's the 95%? Well, that's the paranormal, or the supernatural. Or it might be the primitive, the indigenous, the other, the weirdos, whatever we might think of as weird. But when we speak of the supernatural, I love what Jeffrey Kripal wrote. He's a scholar of religions. He said, well, when you start talking about supernatural, what you really should say is that nature is super." So it's not supernatural one word, but it's super nature. Nature is super already. Inherently, nature is super because inherently nature transcends the 5% or whatever tiny fraction the ego is and can actually deal with. That's what Jung found out in his death process. That little 5% is really limited and we can be aware of more. We're never going to manipulate and control nature. We can't even manage our own psyche. 
And these beings who can't manage their own psyche, whose psyche already outstrips the little ego, that little ego acts as if it can command and control nature. Ego relates to itself as a command and control unit. That's how we relate to the I. I will do it. But it's not a command and control unit, again, from a purely scientific standpoint. Psyche is a self-organizing and self-perpetuating event. It organizes from and towards its own wholeness. The ego doesn't do that. The ego doesn't know how to do that because it's a part. A part can't manipulate and control the whole. We'll never get enough information to do that. And that's why even the approach of so-called information management doesn't make any sense. It's not going to ever function. We have a bunch of egos trying to figure out how things will work and setting their agenda. And the solution has to do with finding ways to enter into the supernatural. Not in some way that becomes irrational or what we might want to dismiss as new agey or deluded or woo-woo, but really the end of delusion. Ego means the self-deception of command and control. Ego thinks it can control the whole. It can't. Can't control the whole psyche. Can't control the, the whole world. Can't control ecologies or nature. Self-deception means identification with my persona. That the persona is me. What I present to others, that's me. Or what is conscious is me. But we're more than that. We transcend the ego. We transcend the persona. We transcend what we call conscious. We transcend the boundaries of the skin. And we could try to affirm that as if it's a belief, like we're all for it. Oh yes, I, I, I'm vast. I contain multitudes. We can just echo Whitman. But then when we confront the reality and what it would mean to live our lives that way, suddenly we don't really know what to do other than go on with our ordinary habits under this new rationalization as an apotropaic defense against reality. Because in practice, we don't live like we're that vast. In practice, we're terrified if somebody threatens to put an end to the bag of skin. In practice, anything that threatens the ego becomes something we will avoid, consciously or not. And we will play all the games that we play in order to do that, to avoid the experience of initiation. So we're just trying to admit that this is all tricky, and we're trying to ask, well, how do we proceed? How do we proceed and allow a skillful sense of the magical, a skillful sense of the superness of nature, a skillful sense of what our own psyche might be and how to work with it? We need a skillful sense of the superness of nature, which amounts to a basic vision of ourselves in the cosmos and how we become the best version of ourselves. And to say it again, all this requires initiation, ultimately. Initiation doesn't mean joining a cult. It's true that religions, of course, do initiate people. Cults initiate people because it's, a, it's an archetype. They have to use it. But venerable traditions do it. The Christian church initiates people. All venerable traditions have initiations. And the deepest work we do 
in these traditions tends to unfold as initiation, often as a kind of ongoing initiation, not just like a specific ceremonial context, although our deep transformations might relate to specific ceremonial or similar kinds of contexts, but it's not like it's a single event and then you're done, like an initiation from uh, being a child to being an adult. That's one event, but that's not the full meaning of initiation. That's why we continue to seek initiatory experiences. We seek that liminal, that bardo space. And if we don't do it formally, and then deliberately face the unknown, the unconscious, the shadow, and so on, then those elements will drive us into initiations that unfold clumsily. You see? If we don't deliberately and skillfully seek it, the initiation experience, then our unconscious dynamics will still drive us to those experiences and they do not have, they're not skillful, they're clumsy. We have names for them. We call them extramarital affairs, drug addictions, bad relationships of all kinds, risk-taking behaviors, and so on. We throw ourselves into initiatory experiences. And sometimes these foolish kinds of initiation get some of the work done. You know, something can happen. At the very least, they can be humiliating. And humiliation forms the central part of initiation in the sense that skillful initiation puts the ego in its place, so to speak, and ideally ends up decentering the ego in a permanent way, ongoing way, putting the ego in orbit around something, in contrast to the ego's attempt to put everything in orbit around it. That's what we unconsciously do. And that's what happens in the foolish initiations. The ego keeps trying to put everything in orbit around itself, keeps trying to have everything it wants to have, keeps trying to fulfill the whole that it feels in itself, and reality is not going to comply. So we end up with a broken marriage, or we end up losing our house or job, or we end up in a rehab or whatever it might be. And we might get a lot of insights from these things if we're lucky. But that doesn't change the fact that the ego is going to stay mostly in control. That's not the same as a spiritual approach to life. We could turn, of course, these events into a spiritual path. But when initiation or shadow work is done in an empowering way, it involves a, a much clearer decentering of the ego and it involves a holistic context. So the ego is trying to hide in a thousand ways, you know, it, it tries to hide behind the persona, for instance. And in general, it's trying to avoid things that are unknown, unconscious, and feel threatening to it. Now, once we undergo real initiation, the ego has to say, "Uh uh-oh, there's other stuff in the psyche and in the world. And that other stuff is in charge. It's got a real say. This thing doesn't all orbit around me. And everything that it's trying to grasp after, it realizes it can't. So the ego faces this possibility, too, that this other stuff, the unknown stuff, might be more ourself than we're comfortable with. The ego then doesn't just face the reality that it can't control everything, but it faces the puzzle. How do how is this stuff going to be integrated? How is it going to be incorporated? Because it can't be incorporated into the I. But rather our reincorporation puts the I again in a different orbit. And there's also this issue that the shadow is directly 
bringing up for us, and that is that some of the stuff is encumbered. It hasn't been cultivated and developed, so we can't just let out and incorporate our anger. That's not going to get us anywhere. Now, it's a good first step to acknowledge that we have repressed anger and to move away from the repressed anger or repressed despair, repressed grief. You know, these things are in the shadow again because we're, we're so desperate for positivity, a positive mindset, and so on. And we don't want to draw in anything negative, we say. But if we look carefully, we might notice a lot of neurotic avoidance of bad moods or any mention of problems or wounds in the world. Now, we wouldn't want to act like there's a problem in the world, would we? We don't want to admit that there's suffering and that there's real urgency to our situation. So we maintain the positivity. We just say, well, you know, you just got to go along with your life, right? Maybe not. Maybe we need to stop. Be no different than if we were doing something, we were actively harming someone, and they said, well, but will you please just stop? And we often have to experience ourselves as if we're so very evolved. And maybe we see everything like it's a learning, new experiences and all this. Oh, we're just learning. It's a lot of new experiences, a lot of learning. Meanwhile, something in us experiences terrible grief, despair, hopelessness, fear, anger, frustration, a sense of intense urgency. And we won't let ourselves acknowledge these things. Because we know that in its current state, it's often embarrassing. But we can't liberate that energy if we don't let ourselves experience it. It's maybe embarrassing, maybe it's just all scary. What do you do with that? So on the one hand, we're supposed to be very mature and know how to handle life. So who, why would I feel despair about these things? You know, I'm more evolved in that. On the other hand, so it's embarrassing to feel that grief and fear. But it's also embarrassing that we don't know what to do. You see, there's like these two levels of it. <laughs> like I, I'm embarrassed that I have the feeling and I'm embarrassed that I, I don't know what to do then. And the way it wants to express itself is not very skillful. Because maybe I could have the courage to admit the grief, but then I still know that it's embarrassing that I just want to cry. And if we did merely let ourselves experience it, you know, we, we would, could, would verge into indulgence, usually. Experiencing these things in the limited way that the ego might be used to or that the ego is afraid of, you know, so we might just throw a tantrum. That's how it wants to come out. And we have not cultivated ourselves in such a way that it, it will do anything else. And so it might be that that's what happens. We, we just end up having a tantrum. That's why people go out into nature and just scream, like primal scream therapy. Just really all this energy, they don't know how to move it out. And just doing that is not the end of the work. And it's not even to say that we sh it's required or we should encourage having tantrums. We have to acknowledge that the energy might be encumbered. And that's part of the reason why we haven't wanted to look at it or acknowledge it, because we don't know what to do with it, how to liberate it, how to let it skillfully move through. And that's why we need training. We need an ecology of practice. We don't have that context here. We have an anti-culture in in, on Turtle Island in general, in the dominant culture. It's not a 
place that roots us in wisdom, love, and beauty. So we need to seek that training. And when we get that training, we start to have a sense of the difference between awareness and what we're aware of. A kind of temporary relational difference. That what we're aware of ultimately is awareness. That starts to open up as well. But as a first step, we just start to say, well, okay, anger is arising. We become aware. Yes, there's anger that's there. And maybe I've tried to suppress it or maybe I've repressed it and told everyone I'm not an angry person. But I don't have to identify with it. That already makes it more spacious. I can be responsible for it. I can take responsibility. But it doesn't mean I have to say, I am angry and get hooked by it and then get pulled into it and do nothing more than throw a tantrum or rage at someone. And we need training for that, compassion training, mind training in general. We need a holistic philosophy of life that allows us to say in a skillful way, there's anger here, and to know how to take care of it. To acknowledge it fully, without giving into it, without wallowing or indulging. Anger is arising. And what does it want to be seen? Now, something needs to be seen clearly here. That's what this anger is about. What is it? What wants to be seen clearly? And how could I liberate this energy into mirror-like wisdom that sees things as they are? Right now it's encumbered. It's just the energy of anger. How could I liberate it? We can't wish it away. There it is. It's anger arising. Can't pretend it's not. And that's what's embarrassing. There it is. Makes me want to hit somebody. That's the only thing. I just want to rage. I just want to scream. But that's not skillful. It's not a skillful state of mind, so I can't just express it. And this judgment in relation to what's in the shadow is also important to recognize, because it might be a very reasonable moral judgment. Because if the thing in the shadow is in an encumbered state, then the only way it knows how to come out is either violent or immature or childish or disruptive. And it might really be pent up. So what are we going to do? Otherwise, I'm not really going to let it out. If I don't know how to liberate the energy, what do I do? And we can understand why there's moralizing around it. Well, you can't go around screaming at people. Sure, we've seen angry people. We've seen unskillful anger. And that's why our anger goes into the shadow. I'm not going to be like that. But with no context on what would be the alternative, you either have to convince yourself, pretend to convince yourself I'm not really angry. Or you have to try to rationalize it away. I shouldn't be. So it's either suppressed or repressed. So are we making sense there? Please send in questions if this is unclear. It's subtle. Sometimes we just have a bad idea, you know? And that's a little easier to get through. Like we have a bad idea that we're not allowed to be kind or soft or vulnerable, and that one seems easy. But you can see that even there, things can start to get twisted if we don't have a good philosophy of life. Because vulnerability, as we typically express it, 
that's going to be encumbered too, right? Because if we put the kindness or softness or vulnerability that we experience, say, in childhood, and we say, oh, I mustn't be like that, and it gets stuck down there in the shadow. Now, it's not been evolved or cultivated. So if we say, well, my vulnerability is in the shadow, now the ego will say, oh, well, that's okay. I'm going to, I'm, look how vulnerable I can be. And the ego just marches up and tries to take charge of it. You see, it's a new possession, a new toy for the ego. Look at me, I'm vulnerable. But that's not vulnerability from the standpoint of the wisdom traditions. Because wisdom means that we can allow ourselves to be totally vulnerable precisely because we've realized our invulnerability. We realize that what we truly are can't be harmed, can't be destroyed, wasn't born, won't die. That's why Socrates was willing to be totally vulnerable. He stood in front of the court during his trial and he said, I know people come up here and get down on their hands and knees and cry and beg for their life. We might, from our modern perspective, look back and say, there, yeah, there's a real man being vulnerable. He admits that he's afraid to die and he cries and he begs for his life because he feels finally his vulnerability and then they have mercy on him because of it. Socrates is standing there totally vulnerable because he's already realized that what he is can't be hurt by these people. So he demonstrates it. He said, yep, you can kill a body. It's really honest. He's really vulnerable. He's, he made it a habit to really know what he, what he didn't know. <laughs> or I mean, We could put it this way. He made it an art to fully not know what he didn't know. And for the most part, we don't realize that when we talk about what we don't know or our vulnerability and these sorts of things, it gets restricted to something useful for the ego. And, and maybe sometimes vulnerability simply means I'm uncomfortable and I'm willing to sit with it. This is scary. And I'm willing to stay. And that starts to put us on a different road if we can really, really not make it something useful to the ego. Because it's not useful to the ego if it can't escape the situation. If the vulnerability means, no, but I'm staying. And really not knowing what I don't know. Really not knowing what I don't know and going to the places that scare me. Okay. And again, we're just recognizing nuance, that's all. And there's a difference between recognizing something versus repressing it. That's the first step. And then there's a further difference between that and liberating the energy. Letting the energy liberate us, in fact. Because we don't go in there like the ego thinks I can go, I can go in there and liberate this energy. I, the ego, can go in and look at the shadow. It's all an ego maneuver. But rather we, as Jung did a little, we, we almost leave the ego out and let self-liberation unfold. And we've referred to these this word energy, you know, we've referred to patterns of energy, and that puts us in a different kind of shadowy territory, the shadowy territory of energy talk. Because people use the term energy to explain just about everything under the sun, and they usually end up not explaining anything at all. The wisdom traditions have a very specific meaning when they refer to energy. And from a, let's say, Buddhist psychological orientation, the trauma, shame, and other patterns that we carry, like great burdens, they have to do with energy. And that energy can liberate us 
from the perspective of these traditions. So that's really important. That we somehow have to be able to be there and have cultivated our awareness and compassion and wisdom in a way that we could be there and let that energy move. But, but the experience of this is more precise than a concept like energy really can get at. And it's just, again, come back to this idea that anything good that's going to come out of shadow work or spiritual practice in general is far more likely within the context of a healthy ecology, within the context of a venerable philosophical or spiritual tradition, a lineage of practice, teachings, handed down from one highly accomplished person to another. If we try to do this work outside of a holistic, wise, compassionate, and highly developed philosophy of life, we almost certainly will limit ourselves and our world. There, there's the problem there. Because countless sentient beings depend on us, the world, our earth, and her beings, the whole community of life. It all depends on us. Everyone we love and strangers, total strangers, depend on us to do the real work. The stakes are far too high for us to do anything less than our very, very best with an attitude of joy and positivity and a confidence that comes from the histories of practice and realization that we can now take up, lineages that have been passed down to us. So we have to find a good lineage, seek initiation and take up the work that all beings depend on us to do. If you have any questions or reflections about this week's contemplation, send them in through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we might consider some of them in a future contemplation. As I said, we'll maybe do one final bit of shadow work. Not shadow work, but more, I think, consider something interesting. might be actually a little bit of fun and a kind of interesting inquiry into something that's in the shadow in our culture. And until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.